ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, we are live, and this is a very, very special edition of the Cheats Movement Podcast, because I am joined by two very special guests, and we're going to be talking about an amazing project that they have conducted, and it's released now. I'm very, very excited to welcome Mallory No Pain, and I have to say it because everybody's going to say it. Pulitzer Prize winning columnist Michael Paul Williams from the Richmond Times Dispatch. And they have just recently released, I believe all six parts are out now, but it is an amazing podcast called Memory Wars. And Memory Wars is a six part series about how Germany confronts its historic past. We are live, people, so you're going to hear some things in the background in this wonderful office that I'm in. Um, but it is a six-part podcast series that explores how Germany confronted its horrific past when we talk about dealing with uh, the history of Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. And what Mallory and Michael have done is they've taken a year of Mallory's work and also had conversations about what that means here in America, in particular, what that means in the American South, and what that means in a place like Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. And it's this very amazing ju juxtaposition about what's happened over in Germany and what's currently happening in many ways still right here in the American South in the United States. So Mallory and Michael, welcome, welcome, welcome to the Cheats Movement. So happy to be here. Thanks for having us. It's it's. It, it, it is an amazing project, and there are so many questions about where to start. And one of the interesting things I will bring up as I've started to listen to the first half of the series is you have, Mallory, you have these amazing conversations, and it seems like oftentimes you're like, ooh, where do I start? Because there's so much. I kind of feel that way now, but I'm going to try to start from the beginning because you have taken on a project in which you went to Germany for a year, mm -hmm. but Anybody that knows anything about journalism and projects like this, and in particular in the space that you're working in now, this has to conceptually come well before that. How did you get to this place where you were even going to get on a plane on January 6th, by the way, yeah. and and go over? Uh, how, how do we get there conceptually to start Memory Wars? So, yeah, I mean, you're right. Uh, the day I left for Germany was the day of the Capitol insurrection, January 6, 2021. But the idea for this podcast and this project came well before then. I had spent years um, in Richmond covering policy and politics here in my, it's my hometown. Um, and during this this very uh, tumultuous set of years, anyone who knows anything about Virginia politics knows that, that we've undergone a lot of change in the past few years. And so when I first started covering policy and politics here, uh, Republicans were in control of the General Assembly. And um, the, the first, I, I recently shared with Michael, the very first story I ever filed for national NPR was, um, coverage of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. Um, and so that sort of 
uh, was the beginning of my work in, in Virginia. And then over the next few years, I watched as that conversation about Confederate monuments evolved quickly um, and public opinion shifted. Um, and as, as uh, politics changed year after year in the General Assembly, and then two years ago, two summers ago, um, as, as protesters and marchers took to the streets in Richmond and literally pulled down Jefferson Davis themselves. Um, and so this was the transition I was reporting on. And throughout it all, I heard multiple times from people in public uh, debates and in public uh, comments, um, you know, Germany doesn't have any statues of Hitler. And um, I didn't know anything about Germany. <laughs> I was like, is that even true? Um, but an opportunity presented itself to, to go and take uh, a year off and spend a significant amount of time on a special project and, um, and specifically to do so in Germany. And it was the very first idea that came to my mind. I was like, what is there for us to learn? From, from this country. And it, it was just immediately obvious to me. Um, and, and so that was the starting point, was pulling together this idea of a comparison about, um, at least at the very beginning, the idea of monuments. But then, of course, it's, it's ultimately so much more than that. Michael, let me ask you, because conceptually, the way the podcast is structured is very interesting. Mallory is in Germany doing her journalism and reporting and having these conversations for a year. And then kind of as a interesting kind of part B of the, the pod, the podcast structure, not part B of the podcast, but podcast structure. She comes home and she's having conversations with you about the American South and Richmond, Virginia. When you heard about what Mallory was doing and the opportunity to discuss this kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, kind of wrestling with, you know, America's greatest sin, but also comparing it to what's happening in a place like Germany. What attracted you to this particular project in this particular format? Well, when I learned, and I'm pretty sure it was on social media, that, that Mallory had gotten the Fulbright and what she was going to be doing with it, what she was going to be pursuing. I was absolutely thrilled, um, almost as much as if I were the one going to Germany. And, uh, and in a way that I'm not, I'm not sure I can fully explain right now, but I was excited. And I, I immediately reached out to her and say, hey, we, I got to write about this. We got to let's do this. And <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I too had heard they don't have statues to Hitler in Germany. And I took it on faith value because it's so utterly illogical for them to do that, just as it was utterly illogical for us to do it here, that it just made perfect sense that there wouldn't be statues of Hitler. Um, nations that are thinking coherently don't do that sort of thing. So um, I reached out to Mallory, and this was like in COVID it started, right? Because we're doing a Zoom, and I hadn't done a Zoom in my life before COVID. So I, um, I said, let's do an interview. Let's Zoom. And um, when we Zoomed, and I, 
I don't think had we like talked at all before the Zoom. And very, very about, little. Yeah. 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 There was, I didn't, you know, and I mean, I, you know how interviews can go, but I felt like an immediate connection. And um, just, I mean, it's almost like it's, it's, I can't say I foresaw that I would be part of this, but I just felt like I was part of it because I was like sharing the thrill of it so vicariously. And I was so engaged in the idea. I thought the idea was brilliant, you know, in the way that things that we all kind of think of, but no one really executes and tests. Oh, are there statues of Hitler and Trump? I'm like, oh yeah, this is this is gonna be good. Mm. I knew it was gonna be good. So I I wanted to like when she was in Germany, I kind of like wanted to keep abreast of what was happening because I wanted to be, I wanted to feel a part of it. Cause I knew I would I knew I'd be writing about it when she came back but just not the way that I ended up doing. Sure. That's a good point. And, and Mallory, every project kind of starts with a concept and then reality hits, you hit the ground and the project has to morph and it may morph along the guidelines of what you, ex you expected, but there's always concept and there's the reality. Like the, like the old adage is what it was the, the Mike Tyson custom auto thing. Everybody has a plan until they get hit in the face. And <laughs> then they have to change the plan. What when you set out to Germany for the year to explore this, what was your intentions and what were you hoping to learn? And you know, piggyback into what when were the first times reality really hit you in the face? So, I I've said it multiple times since I've been home, and, and Mike has heard me say it multiple times. I was so naive, <laughs> I um. Like I mentioned, I don't have much experience in German history. Um, I, I, uh, I took some German lessons, so my language skills were uh, uh, minimal. Um, but I guess I thought that I would just come back with a template, with a playbook, with a here's what we've got to do, here's what they did. Um, and it quickly became clear that um, that how things unfolded in Germany were not easy, that it took generations, that it was incredibly messy. And I would say that one of the first moments that that hit me was when I was talking to Germans about this idea and I got pretty consistent negative feedback um, being like, well, do you really want to look at Germany as an example? Like, we haven't done that good of a job. Um, Surely they're clueless about how poor <laughs> a job we've done. <laughs> I'm going to get to that, Mike. I'm going to get to that. But there's a part of this I have to ask you, but go, go ahead. Oh, I, I mean, so as soon as Germans started telling me two, two things, really, like, oh, you can't compare anything to the Holocaust. Like that, that is a, um, a very taboo thing um, in German culture and society. Um, part of their internal narrative is that the Holocaust is the absolute worst thing that's ever happened and that Germans are responsible for it. And so anything, anything that seems to downplay that fact in any way, for instance, like saying, you know, America also did some really 
bad, terrible things. Um, there's a pushback to that. And so that was one of my very first things I realized was, um, oh, this is going to be a little bit harder than I thought. And, and to have Germans say to me, like, I'm not so sure about the premise of this because, you know, we have a lot of work still to do and, and we haven't done that great a job. So are you sure you want to look at us as an example? Um, and so that was when I realized like, oh, one, this is going to be hard, but two, um, part of, part of what they've done well is, uh, is, um, be really self-critical. Yeah. It, it's interesting because it goes a theme that goes through pretty much all the episodes about kind of like, uh, self-assessment, self analyzing, self-critical, self-inquisitive. Um, and it comes up in a lot of the conversations with, uh, with Mike. Um, but it is fascinating even early on. It's fascinating that, there's this level of when you're talking to people in Germany, there is this level of, I don't know if it's self-awareness or that America seems not to have at all. And, and Mike points this out. The, the idea that America played such a role post-World War II and kind of telling this other to telling Germany and Germans, you're responsible for this. You did this. There are signs that, 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 that I think it's in episode two. There are signs that are American paid for that says you did this. And the idea that they can be so quick to say, hey, you did this. You have to take responsibility for this. Meanwhile, back home, as this is happening, uh, Mike tells a story about it. I believe it's your, your, your grandfather was your father, or grandfather was a world war two veteran. Um, yeah, my and, father was a world war two veteran. And you tell the story about the flag and yeah. you tell the story about being back home and how dare anyone, how dare anyone say to Americans, <laughs> you guys are responsible for these horrific acts. Probably, you know, just could, what could be one of the most, you know, horrific acts of all time when it comes to the, the slave trade. Um, and there is absolutely very little accountability and accountability that seems to be, as we get further and further, it, it, it seems to be less of this. Um, Mike, I want to ask, and, and I'll, I'll ask it this way. Like when you're, how do we kind of, collectively understand where we are in America and the American South, where we are clearly a country that can look post-World War II and, and kind of force uh, force feed, if you will, Germans to, to have a reckoning and understanding of what they did historically. Uh, but yet we have conversations in this country, even today, about teaching accurate history in schools. Like how how do we kind of wrap our minds around where we are here versus, you know, what what you've kind of explored during this project? Well, the, the hypocrisy and the lack of self awareness or the denial is a very age old American story. Um, 
you know, when we were trying to tell Germans what they were doing wrong, during the Cold War, when we were trying to tisk tisk uh, totalitarian states about their denial of human rights, they would throw it right back at us and point at how we were treating, America was treating its black citizens. Um, you know, don't think Russia and, or the Soviet Union and China didn't have a field day with that. And um, I think uh, some of that was the impetus for some of the some of the um, some of the progress that did happen. I mean, I think people like Lyndon B. Johnson were acutely aware of how embarrassing that was on the world stage to have black people being firehosed for global consumption while we were trying to be the global moralizer. Um, but it's all history, and, and and we're still we're still we're still living with what I just described. Um, uh, the, the lack of regard in some parts of the globe where, you know, we can't rally support on the African continent for Ukraine because Ukraine remembers that, well, the Soviets had our back, you know, and, and when you were trying to exploit us um, in South Africa, Soviets had our back, had their back. So, you know, all this is the sort of history that we don't talk about in our classrooms today. You know, we're, we're just drunk on this idea of American exceptionalism. And, you know, they're actually trying to to codify in some school districts, in some places that, you know, this sort of kind of history that's not really history. It's like this naked patriotism and jingoism and, 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 and you, know, um, you know, where you can't, aren't allowed to say that there's anything wrong with America. Mm. And it's insane. I think we can use the word myth, you know, yeah. um, mythology. And myth is, what is it? The, the drug, what did I say? The soap. <laughs> the soap we use to cleanse. <laughs> myth is the soap that societies use to cleanse themselves of sin. Mm -hmm. That's And that's Michael's words, not mine. Um, <laughs> that Mike can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that that he wrote for the introduction to um, one of the episodes where we take a look at um, something in German society called the myth of the clean Wehrmacht. That's the German army during World War II, the Wehrmacht. And for years after the war in Germany, um, there was this idea that German soldiers were innocent bystanders. Um, mm -hmm were, um, I mean, most of the army was drafted and um, something like half of German men served. Um, and, and so for decades after the war, they had to cope, you know, and society at large had to come up with a way to accept that all these men had served under Hitler. Um, and, and so you had the rise of the myth of the clean Wehrmacht, the idea that they were honorable soldiers just defending their homeland. Um, and, and Germany went through a painful process of tearing that myth down and rewriting, you know, this, that story of the war to recast who were the good guys and the bad guys. Um, and that was a process, a difficult process that they underwent, um, and, and this is a story that, you know, Mike and I, it's just, it's, it's the lost cause, right? How do we rewrite the story of our history um, when it's been ingrained in people? Um, but 
but Germany did it. They managed to. It, no, it reminds me, even when you're describing it, it reminds me as a kid, I was, I was taught in Virginia public schools in Richmond that when you're, when you're a younger person in formative years of education, you would say, well, Hey, you know, George Washington, did he own slaves? Thomas Jefferson, did he own slaves? And my teachers would say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they were good slave owners. I mean, it was like, it was this idea that a lot of our founding fathers were these, um, you know, they, 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 they were uh, compassionate. Think about how ridiculous this sounds. But it was that they were compassionate slave owners. And it was the other slave owners that were, that were mean and, and whipped their slaves and beat their slaves. And you're just like, and I'm, and I'm hearing this. And I'm trying to uh, kind of put it together with what you said in, in, in one of the early episodes of the podcast was that there was a process. Mallory, you can probably expand on this. There was a process in which people had to basically be judged about how bad they were post the war. And then it would be like, OK, you would get you know, you did this. So you would either have to go to jail or, or work study. And there was a, a person that you were interviewing that said, well, he wasn't, it wasn't deemed that bad, but he couldn't work for two years. My, my relative couldn't work for two years. So, I mean, just thinking about all of these things that were put in place to try to, I guess, would it, would it be proper to say move on, move forward to get to a place of, I don't know if they were ever getting to a place of healing, but they were definitely trying to progress. Well, there were different approaches and different thought processes. Um, you know, some people in German society said they wanted to make this like clear demarcation and move on to put it behind them. Um, and I think it, it quickly became clear that that really wasn't possible. Um, there were, there were years of silence. Um, there were years where it, it was obvious and it was clear that being a Nazi had been a bad thing and you did not talk about it. Um, and so, so for one generation, they lived under this, this um, set of codes and this narrative shift and under silence. And then the following generation, the children of those people, um, were raised in an in educational environment where the narratives had shifted and it was clear that the Holocaust had been a, a really terrible thing. And this set of people turned to their fathers and mothers and said, where were you during the war? What hmm. did you do during the war? And there was this, this difficult conflict. Um, and, and I think that that sort of generation felt a great burden, a, a set of guilt and shame at being German on the worldwide stage. You know, I talked to people who, when they traveled abroad throughout Europe, would try to hide their German accents or mm. wouldn't make it obvious they were German because they knew that that was a, a shameful thing. Um, but, you know, that's an acknowledgement that there's something to feel shame about. And I right, think there's, it's, there's, a, there's a step one before that. There's a and step a, one before that, yeah. and that's – I don't think that shame should be the end step either mm -hmm. because I think the next step is the sense of responsibility. Um, it's, it's carrying the weight of responsibility of that history and knowing that, you know, you've done wrong. So how do you make amends or attempt to? And so, like, for instance, German society, um, Angela Merkel um, – 
in 2015, during the Syrian refugee crisis, Germany opened up their borders to refugees and, and the thought process on the international stage for that, um, the Germany's political leader said, this is our responsibility as Germans. You know, we are not allowed to turn people away, given our history. Um, and so that's, it's sort of the end line, right? You go through the silence, you go through the shame and the guilt, and hopefully you land at a place of responsibility. Mike, what do you think, as you've gone through this process and you follow Mallory's journey and you've stayed in touch, and now you've been able to dissect and, and talk about how what's happened over there kind of applies in the American South and in Richmond, Virginia, what what did you learn that surprised you about how Germany has handled the years post World War II and the Holocaust and, and, and Nazi Germany? Is, is there anything that 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 kind of just struck you as, you know, what I I never thought of that, but that may, they may be onto something. Well, uh, I wasn't really aware, and it sounds silly now that I think about it, of the extent to which the U.S. influenced the product, the process, um, that that immediately knocked me for a loop. Because of um, the hypocrisy. Yeah. <laughs> There's that word again. Yeah. Um, I guess, it, you know, I was also naive in thinking it was a relatively seamless process or seamless as something that difficult could be. And just hearing the stories of resistance and, and conflict and ambivalence about, say, for instance, putting up a monument, a memorial to um, the murdered Jews. Um, it, it, um, it was all very enlightening um, and really re more rewarding in a way to hear that how difficult the work was for them. Um, it, um, I didn't realize, I mean, I thought of the Nuremberg trials before. I mean, it was such an education for me. I thought of that as like something, you know, because it's, it's such a big thing in our pop culture, down to the Woody Allen references. But to hear how relatively inconsequential they were as far as bringing masses of people to justice was like a real eye opener. Um, it, it, it was just so much. I mean, it was just so gratifying to just hear so much, learn so much about a chapter that I didn't know because we really haven't explored it that much. I mean, a couple examples of sort of how challenging it, it was in Germany. I mentioned the myth of the clean army. In um, the late 1990s, there was an exhibit challenging that myth and it traveled all across the country. Um, more than half a million people saw it. Um, and I think of it a lot today as like the 1619 project. It was this big, um, uh, um, important work of journalism and of history that helped to start to challenge people and reframe the way they thought about themselves and their country. Um, and that exhibit in Germany that, that did that work was bombed by neo-Nazis. Mm -hmm. There were big 
protests and backlash, um, people arguing, why are you shaming our, our German men and soldiers? Um, and then counter protests. I mean, it is the tension that we've had here. Um, it, it was revealing to know that that messy dialogue plays an important role. Um, that's one example, I suppose. Just thinking about how reviled the 1619 project has come to be. Sure. Um, you know, one distinction being that's 400 year old history. I mean, it's not, you could make the argument, it's still relatively raw and fresh in Germany. But this is right. 400 year old stuff we can't deal with. And just the obvious parallel of the clean Vermont. The pronunciations always. <laughs> I thought that was well done. That, that was, was well done. That was really good. Was really I mean, good. it does. The, the, the length of time, I think, does pose a really distinct hurdle for us, um, as well as the fact that unlike Germany at the end of the war, there's no occupying force right now, like forcing us to do this work. Um, it's the South awesome. had one. The South had one. <laughs> a very brief moment. <laughs> that and, is true. And it was game changing, which we weren't taught. Right. No, it was game. You had people who were enslaved in led in state houses, in sure. Congress, running cities, running cities better if you read some of the stuff than they were run before. Sure. sure. You know, multiracial democracies like in Wilmington. Violently overthrown because you know the, the north. Well, I mean, in Richmond, southern brethren. In Richmond, there was a lot more um, elected officials and things. I was reading John Mitchell Jr.'s biography um, a couple years ago, and I had to have a conversation with Bill Martin afterwards because I was like, "You mean to tell me this was all happening in the in the legislature?" Like John Mitchell Jr. was a city council member, yeah. and um, I was like, "What happened?" And they were like, well, well, Jim Crow happened. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and, and we look at kind of gerrymandering and redistricting down, but the, the actual size of Jackson Ward on a map, what it used to be to what it is today, is, is night and day. Like, they shrunk Jackson Ward um, considerably. And so, it, it, no, it's just, it, it, it makes complete sense. Um, but yeah, I think the the resistance of of the American South in America turned into. I mean, it was the, the the idea, like you were saying, that there's that we would be self critical. It's a challenge well, to be self critical. Now, let's reframe just a little bit the resistance of of white America. Yes, yeah, of, of white supremacy. Yeah, yeah, of white supremacy of of white Southerners and white Northerners and politicians who prioritized white reconciliation sure. um, at the expense of black Americans um, who, I mean, the Virginia state legislature was its most diverse in history in the years immediately following the civil war. Um, Indeed. Indeed. Um, Think about if that had been allowed to continue. Mind blowing. What, what America would be today if Reconstruction were not preempted? No. That's crazy. And and I mean one another thing that really stuck out in Mallory's reporting. I can't remember the um 
the German prime minister, president, whomever, who gave the speech in which he said, we are liberated. What a way, we've not done that yet. Mm -mm. You know, it's like, there's still all this uh, resistance and resentment. So the, the context there is, um, his name was Richard von Weizsäcker, and he was the German president. Um, and he gave a speech in, I can't remember the 80s, the early 90s, um, maybe even earlier than that. And he actually had been a soldier during World War II. He had served in the German army. So he came from this place of, at least to other Germans, um, had a little, had this sense of moral authority on the issue to say we were wrong. And I can say that because I was wrong. Um, and it didn't seem like that he would, you know, other Germans didn't feel like they were being moralized at or, or talked down to. Um, and he gave a very famous speech um, celebrating the day of liberation, the end of the war, instead of framing it as a day of defeat. Um, and just that word change, you know, is an example of how um, important it is to reframe sure. um, moments in history. Ladies and gentlemen, the voices you are hearing is Mallory Nopain and Michael Paul Williams. The podcast is called Memory Wars. It is a six-part series. It was a production of Radio IQ and distributed by PRX. Let me ask, as we kind of close out, there was um, an episode where I believe, Mallory, you posed the question to, to Mike about, is it too late for us? Here, here in America, is it too late to do some of the difficult work that has happened in Germany and get to places where the Germans have gotten? Is it is it too late and is it too kind of rigid in a in what is now an American culture to make it? And Mike, you had a really interesting answer to that, which is it better not be because if we don't do this work now. It, what's the future hold? It's only going to go kind of worse from here if we don't do the work. I, I want to get both of your senses now that this project is is kind of completed and you can hear all six episodes anywhere you get podcasts. Make sure you check it out and subscribe and, and leave a comment and a donation for them as well. But what's your sense of that question now? Is it too late and can can this work be done? Is, is it a similar answer or do you have a different perspective on it? Well, as the resident pessimist of this team, I should answer first because we want to leave our viewers and listeners on an upbeat note. Um, and I, I wrote about this today. Um, if it didn't get gobbled up, I was having all sorts of problems. But um, uh, as part of um, kind of a fifth anniversary piece on the um, white supremacist march in Charlottesville. And I name dropped, I name dropped our um, podcast in there. But um, it's damn near too late. Um, I think anyone who doesn't realize we are on the brink and the thunder rolls as if one cue. We are on the brink of um, uh, the potential demise of multiracial pluralistic democracy in this country is is asleep um 
Just think about when Obama got elected and all the hype and all of the we were the post-racial and just all the optimism about hope and change. That was a very that was 2008. It's a very short time ago. And think about where we are now, where we are literally um, uh, we literally have legitimate fears about whether our democracy will survive, and that has been fueled in a large part by the white supremacy that still lives with us, the legacy of the white supremacy, the um, resurgence of these groups um, to the point where they're literally in consultation with the highest halls of power as they plot an insurrection. Um, yeah, it's, it's, we've never, it's the wages of the sins that we've never dealt with, never addressed in this country, and they are coming home to roost for sure. And we've got a very small window to deal with this. And if a crisis like this won't, I don't know what will. Mike, you said an interest, you use some interesting terminology and language, and it does throw me back to one of the early episodes in which maybe the might've even been the prologue when you talked about Mallory, you getting on the plane on January 6th and Mike, you said you watched the January 6th insurrection through what you believed was probably different lenses than a lot of people watching. Of course, they were the, the normal shock and all, but the, the way that you framed it, and I was going to ask you this before you said uh, the coming home to roost, but you probably know where I'm going with this. Uh, it reminded me so much, the way you described watching the insurrection and, and your thoughts about it was after the Kennedy assassination and the interview that ultimately got uh, Minister Malcolm X suspended from the Nation of Islam. But he basically said, basically, this is a result of all of the the things that, you know, white people, white society, white supremacy culture puts in. And he used the phrase chickens coming home to roost when they were talking about the Kennedy assassination. I was you didn't say it, you know, you didn't use the language then, but I'm just sitting here watching and being like, there's got to be something that 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 it just so kind of starkly rem reminded me of the words of the minister at the time when you were watching that in January 6th. Does I mean, I'm sure a lot of things come to mind, but were you thinking along those lines or did, did that did those kind of not just Malcolm X, but kind of those civil rights leaders? And they're talking about like, hey, look, we didn't do this. You guys did this. And now look at what's happening. Here. Yeah, I mean. You know, it has been the tragic role of Black activists, um, and Martin Luther King comes to mind most vividly, trying to save America, literally trying to save America from itself, because hate is so corrosive. You cannot, um, you cannot foment the sort of hatred and, and violence and inequality um that america has for so long now and and think it is possibly sustainable it's just not sustainable um people rise up or it goes sideways in the way that it's going now so yeah it's you it's just you know people didn't want to hear chickens come home to roost america was the entire nation was in a state of shock and mourning um but yeah i mean Sometimes you have to be indelicate in saying what the reality is in a certain situation in America. And I think we've been tiptoeing around the moment we're in right now. 
um, when we need to be sounding every alarm available about what's happening because it's unimaginable. I want to, um, something that I sort of have come to realize throughout the, the process of this project is um, how um, unequally we share the burden of our history. Um, I think that white Americans um, for a large part don't see it as their burden or their sinful past. Um, something that I struggled without, with throughout the process is um, we, we followed along in one episode a young uh, Jewish American woman who comes back to Germany to reclaim that heritage of her ancestors there. Um, and the burden and the weight of that trauma for her, but how she can't stop digging. She wants to learn more. She needs to learn more. Um, and then in another story, we look at um, another young woman whose ancestors were Nazis. And, you know, what sense of responsibility or burden does she feel in going back through that history? And I had been very content to know my own family's ancestry in generalities, um, but it became clear that that it's our responsibility and it's our burden to, to go back and learn those specifics because, um, because it can't just be Black Americans' burden and responsibility for, for uh, interrogating our past or feeling the weight of that. Um, and then so one of the episodes that you probably haven't gotten to yet, we, we take a look at my family history and ancestry, Mike, and our editor pushed me to, to do that. Right. No, I think it's episode five, right? Called Mallory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mallory's story. And, and I just, you know, I bring it up because I think it's really important. You, you ask if it's too late. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's too late or not, but if we're going to enact the kind of systemic policy changes that need to happen, I don't know that we're going to be effective at doing that until we closely interrogate why it's necessary and change public opinion on that. And, and that's not going to happen until people more closely interrogate the past. <laughs> Um, and feel a sense of burden and responsibility for that past. Mallory and Michael, I'll give you both the last word in the sense of now that the, the episodes are released, make sure everybody checks it out. Um, the research has been done for for a year overseas and then even more when you come back. Mallory and Michael, where, where do we go from here? You, you, you've gotten you've you've done this project. You, you have a newly found knowledge base and understanding what can we what can we apply what can we do obviously everybody needs to listen to all six parts and, and i'm gonna do my part on that but where do we go from here mallory and mike i was i was trying to sell mallory yesterday on the idea that she needs to franchise this I, I agree. It needs to be a um, traveling thing. Yeah. I, I think. Yeah. I want to. I, I want to send Mike to South Africa. <laughs> oh, that would be phenomenal. I'm up for it. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. But, but every every country has its painful past and its way of dealing with it. I mean, you think of what South Africa did, and South Africa is still a country with a lot of 
challenges, but you think of where it was in my lifetime mm -hmm. and um, just the apartheid was brutal and it was, mm -hmm. you just didn't see a way out of it other than just horrendous, horrendous bloodshed. Mm -hmm. And somehow they got out of it without that. Um, you know, how Nelson Mandela and, 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 and Bishop Tutu and, and how, how they pulled that off, I will never know, but they, mm -hmm. they, they did. And they had a truth and reconciliation commission. And like I said, there's still challenges there, but every country has a story. And we in America tend to be so myopic and just we, we think our history is the only history and that America is exceptional and, and doesn't need to interrogate itself. And it's, it's insane. So I think there's so many lessons we can learn from so many other places about how they're dealing with their challenges that would be useful for us. But the very first thing that I would really like to see happen here in Richmond is I want that that slavery museum in Chaco Bottom. Um, and we need to have a place of remembrance and memorialization and learning that people from all over the country come to. Um, because a lack of that is is wild. Um, and how long it's taken to get off the ground, despite so much hard work from activists. Um, you know, we, we just like, we need to fund it. We need to get it up and rolling and we need to get all school children there. <laughs> That'd be a great first step. Let's that's do that. A, that's, <laughs> a, that's, no, it's, an, it's an amazing, uh, I, I wonder where we are on that because the last, well, the last ones I heard was, I mean, I'm sure there was new stuff, maybe in, maybe the Navy Hill proposal, but it was governor Wilder, right. Wanted to put one in Shaka bottom. Then he got mad and wanted to move it to Fredericksburg. Was something like that, <laughs> and then I think it was maybe in the Navy Hill product uh, ideas. But is it is there plans for a uh, kind of a slavery museum in Shaka Bottom? It's, it's, it's still it's still way 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 underfunded, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. even if you get the brick and mortar up, um, then there are the operational expenses, and then sure. will it will it be supported? You know, given the mindset of folks um, in the current environment. There, sure. there are a lot of challenges there. I remember I, I was like, why don't you put it in the train station? We have this glorious Victoria era, era era train station. It sits empty. I mean, it's supposed to be an event space, but come on. So I remember covering um, a, a report from researchers at VCU essentially laying out the economic argument for such a museum, like how much money it would help bring to the city and the downtown area. Um, and that's all well and good. I had this conversation with a museum director in Munich, Germany. The, she runs um, the National Socialism Documentation Center. It's the Nazi Museum in Munich, which was heart of the Nazi movement. And I asked her about like pushback to that museum. It's a very clear-eyed look um, at, at difficult history. And I asked when they were getting support for the museum, which is all government, it's totally government funded, it's free, paid for by the federal, state and city government. I said, you know, um, how do you measure success? Does anybody care about how much money it brings in? And she was baffled for a second by that idea. Like <laughs> just totally baffled. She was like, well, like, what do you mean how much money, what, right. what, like, um, she was like, uh, well, we care about like how many visitors come and everything. and. Um, and I was like, yes, but like, is it important to sort of acknowledge or when you were trying to get support for the museum in the first place, like thinking about bringing people into the city and spending money? And she was like, 
No. Not a thought. Not even a not thought. thought. She's like, that's not the point of this museum. It's not an argument for this museum. This is a moral. She, she, she used that language. She was like, this is an issue of morality. This is the right thing to do. But see, you're getting at some of the distinct cultural differences. Viewing things as a moral imperative. There was a lot of talk of, in, that I picked up on in your reporting about humility. Mm -hmm. Um, atonement. We're just we're just not there on any of that. I mean, there are just a lot of people in high places who feel like America has nothing to apologize for. Um, it, it's just there have got to be some tremendous attitudinal shifts on so many fronts before we can honestly interrogate this history. And the problem is, I feel like it's going in the wrong direction. That's yeah. that's my challenge because. There was a moral obligation and a moral imperative in parts of the, the late 50s and 60s, mid 50s, mid, you know, 50s and 60s, where it was when it was made known that Bull Connors was putting dogs on black people and they saw it on the six o'clock news. That's when the president of the United States was like, hey, we got to do something about this. This is ridiculous. My fear is there are, you know, political events and rallies where people are getting punched in the face. The, you know, the, the person on the stage is like, hey, take that guy out of there forcefully. And no one has a moral, like there's not a moral compass that says that we got to scale this back. And that's where it throws me to, to has me wonder if 2022 is 1963 or 62. And because we see now, you know, even if we're talking about, um, you know, we're talking about law enforcement, we see over and over again now and in this day and age in current history, we saw one this week of dash cams or vest cams catching bad actors, if you will, doing really bad things. And it doesn't seem like there's a collective uproar where I think it would have been in, in, in different times. Well, we had that moment two years ago. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, George exactly. Ford was our Emmett Till moment, our our um, Birmingham moment. Um, exactly. I'm with you. I'm with you on this and, one, Mike. But I don't know if it's the internet or what, but I mean, it seems like it doesn't have a shelf life. I don't know if we're getting desensitized to it. I think that, I think that's it. Or, or, or what, but it's, just, I mean, <laughs> the mass shootings on the regular. What does it take? Well, look, I just keep reminding myself that when I left for Germany, Robert E. Lee was standing, and when I came back, he was down. Um, I'm with you. Yep. Good point, Melanie. And it, it, it is possible. Change is possible. Mallory, we are going to leave it there because that is the perfect last word of that's, trying that's to. That's why we work. <laughs> that's that's why that's trying to uh, meeting the moment <laughs> ladies and gentlemen the podcast is called memory wars it is available right now all six parts and the prologue it's available anywhere podcasts are available obviously this has been such a treat for me to listen conversate and and learn from both you mallory and, and mike it's it's a pleasure ladies and gentlemen until next time we see it yeah.
Yo, yo, I'm trying to play leaving. Right. See you at the airport.